Hello, and welcome to the podcast that helps you win the race Christ has marked out for you. Today, we conclude our four-part series, Forging Attitudes That Point to Jesus, by examining the fourth attitude in the Sermon on the Mount, which describes the kind of ambition that Jesus had and wants his followers to have. Welcome to season number one, episode number 11 of Mission Focused Men for Christ. My name is Gary Yagel, and since a central part of our mission as Christ followers is to forge Christ like attitudes, we've been studying the first four Beatitudes. Today we come to Matthew 5 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. This attitude, says Jesus, is the path to the satisfaction of our God-given human desires. So let's look at what's required to exhibit this character quality. The best summary of this heart attitude that I've found comes from John MacArthur, who writes, This beatitude speaks of strong desire, of driving pursuit, of a passionate force inside the soul. It has to do with ambition, ambition of the right sort, whose object is to honor, obey, and glorify God by partaking of his righteousness. This holy ambition is in great contrast to the common ambitions of men to gratify their own lusts, accomplish their own goals, and satisfy their own egos. To see the greatness of this heart attitude, we must be clear to distinguish it from its imposters. This hunger and thirst for righteousness is not the legalism practiced by the Pharisees and most religions. It is not self-righteousness. It is not an attempt to earn the favor of God by keeping his outward rules. It is not the salvation by works that all other religions teach. Jesus said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. Their external self-righteousness was not real righteousness at all. Secondly, hungering and thirsting for righteousness is not moralism, the cousin of legalism. Moralism is practiced by those who trust Christ alone for salvation, but are insecure in their love relationship with God. Grace has not traveled from their heads to their hearts. They aren't sure God will love them if they don't behave. Instead of the freedom of basking in God's unconditional love, moralism tries to control God's behavior toward us by being good. A moralist knows he's saved by grace, but still feels enslaved and oppressed by the moral law. It's oppressive because he has to keep it for God to love him. However, as Steve Brown says, only those who know God will love them, even if they never get better, will ever get any better. When they understand God's unconditional love, they will love the moral law. It is God's path to life and to pleasing him. Third, hungering and thirsting for righteousness is not a pre-conversion desire to be justified, that is, declared righteous in God's eyes. It is true that when God regenerates us, the desire to escape God's condemnation is often part of the conversion process. 
But Jesus is not talking about conversion in this verse. He is not talking about the one-time action of God the judge in declaring us righteous according to the law because Jesus' righteousness is imputed to us. Rather, the grammatic construction indicates continuing, ongoing, hungering, and thirsting. The righteousness that Jesus refers to is an ongoing process growing in conformity to the moral law, which we call sanctification. This is what the Greek word dikaiosune means, that is, conformity to the moral law of God. When Jesus says we are to hunger and thirst for such righteousness, the power of that metaphor misses modern-day believers who know very little about being really hungry or really thirsty. But in Jesus' day, a working man ate meat only once per week, and many beggars would have to go two days before eating. Severe thirst was even more common in a world where there was no plumbing, a hot, scorching sun, and dust storms that could fill the throat and nostrils nearly to the point of suffocation. Jesus is saying, My followers are those whose longing for righteousness is as strong as a starving beggar's hunger for food, whose passion for righteousness is as intense as the thirst of a weary, parched-throated traveler. As we consider our mission to hunger and thirst for righteousness, this mission is lived out in two arenas, our own personal righteousness and righteousness in the culture around us. Let's begin with personal righteousness. This means bringing every part of our being, our thoughts, motives, attitudes, actions, speech, into conformity with God's commands, his moral law. Remember, this hunger is generated by the Holy Spirit who indwells us, and it is always a response of wanting to please God who already loves us unconditionally, not an insecure attempt to get God to like us more. Authors Henry Cloud and John Townsend, in their book, How People Grow, observe, when we really understand that God isn't mad at us anymore— we become free to concentrate on love and growth instead of trying to appease him. The mark of one who hungers and thirsts for righteousness in his own life is one who loves the moral law of God. King David expresses such love in Psalm 119. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. You, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. Again, it is important to say that seeking to conform every part of my life to what is right to God's moral law is not legalism. It is the result of the Holy Spirit's work inside us. 
Some Christians mistakenly think that Jesus teaches grace in the New Testament and the Old Testament is about law. But listen to Jesus' words about the moral law, stated by Jesus just nine verses after giving this fourth beatitude. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus actually corrected the Pharisees' superficial outward understanding of the moral law later in this same Sermon on the Mount. The sixth commandment, said Jesus, prohibits not just murder. You have said that it used to be said, you shall not murder. But it also prohibits wounding another through our anger or abusive words. Similarly, the seventh commandment prohibits not just adultery, but lusting after a woman who is not your wife. Far from making the moral law of the Old Testament obsolete, Jesus' teaching in Matthew 5-7 through amplifies the moral teaching of the two tables of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. Not only that, but his summary of the two tables of the law is even broader in its application. The first four commandments refer to our vertical relationship with God, the second six to our horizontal relationships with each other. When Jesus was asked which is the greatest commandment, he summarized these two tables. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Christ followers hunger to conform every part of their lives to moral rightness, summarized here by our Lord in loving him and loving our neighbor. This pursuit of righteousness requires not just personal holiness, but also working for right treatment, justice in the world around us. This weekend, we celebrate the birthday of Martin Luther King Jr. Dr. King was not without his character flaws, but he is a fine example to us of hungering for rightness in our culture. From a jail in Birmingham, he took the time to answer those who said he should not protest for the wrong treatment of African Americans, but wait, because things were going to get better. Here are some of Dr. King's words. I guess it's easy for those who have never felt the sting stinging darts of segregation to say, wait. But when you suddenly find your tongue twisted and your speech stammering as you seek to explain to your six-year-old daughter why she cannot go to the public amusement park that has just been advertised on television and see tears welling up in her little eyes when she is told that Funtown is closed to colored children, and see the depressing clouds of inferiority begin to form in her little mental sky, and see her begin to distort her little personality by unconsciously developing a bitterness toward white people. 
When you have to concoct an answer for a five-year-old son asking in agonizing pathos, Daddy, why do white people treat colored people so mean? When you take a cross-country drive and find it necessary to sleep night after night in the uncomfortable corners of your automobile because no motel will accept you, when you are humiliated day in and day out by nagging signs reading white and colored, when your first name becomes nigger and your middle name becomes boy, then you will understand why we find it difficult to wait. This weekend also calls attention to the Supreme Court decision in Roe v. Wade, making abortion a legal right. There is no creature more helpless and needing protection than the unborn child in the womb. There is no injustice that is more severe than killing an unborn child. There is no human right that is more sacred than the right to life. We as Christ Church cannot rest until the abortion industry and its supporters are stopped. Wherever Christ followers see injustice, bullying, abuse, wrong treatment of those made in God's image, our heart hunger for righteousness must drive us to fight it. Well, this beatitude, though, goes beyond urging the hunger and thirst for righteousness to prevail in our own hearts and through God's world. It teaches a profound lesson about God's design to satisfy the desires of the human heart. True, lasting satisfaction of our human desires always lies in the path of righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. It is those who pursue righteousness who in the end discover their desires to be satisfied. Although sin corrupts our desires themselves, a big part of hungering for righteousness is resisting the wrong way to satisfy a natural human desire. Consider some examples. First, the desire to be successful can lead us to cut ethical corners to get a job, make the sale, or achieve a good goal. I am an Eagle Scout. But my satisfaction for this achievement is marred by the fact that I falsified information to get one of my merit badges. Goals and objectives reached when there is dishonesty or cheating never ultimately satisfy. Number two, the desire to be respected can lead us to subtly try to impress others, voice our opinion instead of listening to theirs, and criticize others as if tearing them down somehow elevates us. But Jesus said, whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Number three, the desire to make someone who hurts you know how much it hurt can lead to an angry counterattack, resentment, bitterness, withholding of affection, instead of waiting for things to cool off and then courageously saying, when you said such and such, I felt such and such. The right response to being hurt is spelled out by Paul, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. And let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Number four, the desire for sexual and romantic fulfillment is powerful. 
We will talk about how to cope while single with this desire in the next series of podcasts. God gives us such a strong sex drive because he wants us to often get sexually drunk with our wives. But in a fallen world that brings brokenness into married lovemaking and lots of opportunity to satisfy sexual craving with images instead of with a real woman, it is easy to sow seeds of corruption into our sexual desires. But real sexual satisfaction is always the fruit of pursuing sex righteously, which means with our wives alone. Number five, the desire to save money can cause us to underpay one who works for us, be dishonest in order to qualify for a sale or get an event into an event dishonestly by not paying the entrance fee. But Proverbs 10.2 is clear. Ill-gotten gains do not profit, but righteousness delivers from death. Number six, the desire to enjoy good times with friends is something that Jesus did. Jesus himself said he came eating and drinking and was accused of being a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He turned the water into wine so the wedding feast of Cana could continue. Yet righteous partying always stops short of drunkenness or being controlled by alcohol. Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit, said Paul. Number seven, the desire to be liked can cause us to always be nice to people, never challenging them with a truth they need to hear, like their need for Christ or another truth. Jesus said, woe to you when all men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. And Proverbs 27.6 observes, wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. So hungering and thirsting for the righteous way to fulfill our God-given desires is always the path to true, lasting satisfaction. In this episode, we saw that the ambition that is to preoccupy Christ followers is conforming our lives in every way to God's moral law, not to get God to love us more, but because he already loves us unconditionally. That hunger and thirst for rightness is to spill over to the world around us, where we must devote ourselves to opposing wrong treatment towards all human beings who are made in the image of God. For further thought, of the seven human desires mentioned that we tend to try to satisfy the wrong way, which ones stand out to you? Number two, what are one or two other natural desires that you are tempted to satisfy the wrong way? Number three, you might want to Google Letter from Birmingham Jail to read this full, very moving letter, just 10 minutes to read. And or go to the National Right to Life website to check out the March for Life and other abortion statistics. In our next episode, we will continue to look at our mission to exercise dominion over every aspect of our lives for Christ. We begin a four-part series called Managing Your Sexuality for God's Glory. For further information about our ministry, go to forgingbonds.org. And if this podcast has been helpful to you, don't forget to tell other Christian men about a podcast that helps them stay focused on their mission to honor Christ with their lives. Music.